I'm working on the dark matter problem, which is one of the biggest unsolved problems in science. We don't know what most of the universe is made of. Welcome to the Physics Central Podcast. I'm Calla Cofield. In the past few weeks, two searches for dark matter have announced that they have not found anything yet. These negative results can be somewhat discouraging, but they're an important part of this scientific quest. Today we're going to talk about one of those searches, which is exploring the possibility that dark matter is made up of very old black holes. Now, while the most recent results did not find those black holes, scientists say there is still a possibility they exist. But if they do, they must be very, very small. More on that today on the Physics Central podcast. When scientists look up at the universe, at all the stars and galaxies and gas clouds, they've noticed that something is not quite right. The regular matter in the universe is moving as if there's a huge gravitational force acting on it. But scientists don't know where that force is coming from. It's like watching two people play catch with a baseball, but imagine that the people are invisible. Obviously, baseballs don't move like that on their own, so even if you can't see those people, you'd know that something was acting on that baseball. So scientists are pinned with this task of trying to figure out what is that gravitational force that's acting on all the regular matter? We know the dark matter there. We know it's five times more than all the atoms, but we don't know what it is. All we know is it's very dark and it lives in galaxies. That's about it. This is Kim Greist. He's a professor of physics at the University of California, San Diego. And among other things, he is trying to crack the dark matter mystery. Now, based on the few things scientists know about dark matter, that it's dark and there's a lot of it, they know that normal atoms cannot be responsible for this effect, simply because you would need so many atoms to generate this huge gravitational pull, and if you had that much normal matter, it would be visible. So what sort of stuff is both extremely massive, but also invisible, and also not normal atoms? There's been lots of ideas, and uh, hundreds of ideas. Most in the last few decades have been focused around some kind of new elementary particle, if you say it's not atoms, what can it be? Well, the next thing you think of is some new kind of particle. But a primordial black hole, meaning a black hole that formed in the first few microseconds of the universe, also does not count as an ordinary atom. And so it's a standard model candidate for the dark matter. Primordial black holes, if they exist, would have formed in the first few minutes after the Big Bang. And at that very early moment in time, there was nothing in the universe but a soup of free-floating particles, no atoms. And this was one extremely thick soup. It would have been so dense that black holes might have just popped up all over the place. If you just have too much density in a little area, it turns into a black hole in the early universe. This is theoretical. No one has confirmed that these primordial black holes exist. Scientists have confirmed the existence of non-primordial black holes. These regular black holes form when a massive star dies and it collapses in on itself. 
The major difference between these regular black holes and primordial black holes are their range of sizes. The smallest regular black holes in our universe are at least three times the mass of the sun. Only very large stars have enough mass to create a black hole. But that soup of particles in the early universe, theoretically it was so dense that it allowed for much smaller black holes to form. There could be primordial black holes the size of Texas, or the size of a basketball, or even the size of an atomic nucleus. There's basically no lower limit. And scientists have tried to look for primordial black holes in different mass ranges. Now, people have looked for these over the years, and most of the mass ranges have been excluded. People look for them and don't find them. You know, if you have them as big as a galaxy, you're going to notice them. And so, you know, that's not giant black holes. But these little moon-sized black holes uh, could perfectly well be it. When Greist says moon-sized, he's referring to the mass of primordial black holes. Small primordial black holes meet both criteria for dark matter. First, they're very massive, and enough of them could account for that mysterious gravitational pull. And second, they are dark. Now, you would think that by definition, black holes would be dark, but large black holes actually give away their location in various ways. They influence the motion of things around them like stars. In some cases, they actually radiate jets of high-energy photons and other particles. And a large black hole will also block out the light behind it, so even if it's dark, it's not invisible. But small black holes, for the most part, do none of those things. So the question becomes, how would you find these virtually invisible black holes? A few years ago, Greist and his colleagues suggested an answer to that question. They thought you could look for these tiny black holes using an effect called gravitational lensing, where the gravity of a black hole bends starlight and actually makes a star look brighter than it actually is. And they realized that you could do this with a telescope that already existed, the Kepler Space Telescope, which was built to look for planets in other solar systems. What happens is, is one of these little black holes goes in front of a star. And because of gravitational lensing, the star gets a little bit brighter. It only gets a little bit brighter for a few hours, maybe two or three hours. And by a little bit brighter, I mean a little bit, it gets maybe one part in 10 to the fourth, so 0.01% brighter. That's completely unobservable from any telescope on ground. Right? No one can measure stars that accurately, the brightnesses. But Kepler is there looking for little tiny Earths going around these stars, and so it's got that precision. And it's looking for little things that last only a couple hours. Not bumps, we're looking for a little bit of brightening. They're looking for a little bit of dip in the brightness as the Earth goes in front of the star. So almost exactly the same analysis that they're doing to look for extrasolar planets in Kepler was what we needed. So Greist and his team began their search through the Kepler data. So we looked through, and uh, the first thing we did, we found them. We found little bumps just lasting the time we thought. So for a while we said, well, let's book our... Uh, our trip to Stockholm, this will win the Nobel Prize if you figure out who, what the dark matter is. But, be, but before doing that, of course, we did a lot of checks. And one of the checks we did is we discovered that all of these little bumps happened on 
in a, in a line across the Kepler field. And what we actually had discovered was a comet going through the Kepler field completely invisibly because it's very faint. But because Kepler's so accurate, when the comet went in front of a star, it made the star a tiny bit brighter. So they adjusted for the comet and for other background events that might look like primordial black holes. And after a lot of statistics and a lot of analysis and a lot of hard work... We found nothing. Nothing. So with two years of Kepler data, which is what we analyzed, we, we found none of these uh, moon-sized primordial black holes. And so what we were able to do then is to eliminate another region of parameter space. So it's not, it's not a hugely exciting uh, result that we discovered the dark matter, but we cut out maybe 25% of the remaining parameter space, and we're working on maybe getting some of the rest of it because then we could just eliminate primordial black holes as a candidate or discover them if they're there. So if primordial black holes do exist, they're going to be extremely small less than one millionth the mass of the moon. The research by Greist and his colleagues was published in the October 31st issue of the journal Physical Review Letters. There are two more years of Kepler data for Greist and his colleagues to search through. He says it's definitely still possible the primordial black holes could appear, but he has his doubts. Because what we're doing is we eliminate primordial black holes over a certain mass range, but at the lower mass range, lower than that, we don't have enough sensitivity. With the new data, we'll be able to be sensitive to a lower mass range. So there's a chance that we could actually still discover the dark matter at that lower mass range. You know, I have to say it's somewhat unlikely now because we've already searched through half the data. A negative result is certainly not as exciting as finding dark matter, but these negative results are still constructive. When the hunt for primordial black holes began, scientists had no idea how massive they might be, so they didn't know where they should be looking for them or how they should be looking for them. And that kind of uncertainty can make experiments risky and less likely to be funded. But now scientists know where to look, and they might even come up with new ways to look there. About the same time that Greist and his colleagues reported their results, another dark matter experiment was also announcing its detection of nothing. The Large Underground Xenon Dark Matter Experiment, or LUX, is searching for dark matter in the form of a new type of particle. That experiment is just starting up and will be the most sensitive dark matter detector of its kind. Just like with the primordial black holes, the null result from LUX is helping scientists narrow down the range where they should be looking. It's possible that neither of these experiments is betting on the right horse, but better to be sure than to be left in the dark. That's all for the Physics Central podcast. I'm Cala Cofield. As always, you can find more podcasts, our Physics Buzz blog, resources, and so much more at physicscentral.com. Tune in next week for more of the Physics Central podcast.